the employer tax exclusion is under attack, the new wellness rules are not well, overtime rules are vexing employers, and Hillary Clinton is talking about the public option? So what else is new? We'll find out when Jessica Waltman joins us for her quarterly visit on this episode of Shift Shapers. Change either paralyzes or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to the Shift Shapers podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs who have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change that you want to see. Here's your host and chief transformation strategist, David Saltzman. This episode of the Shift Shapers podcast is brought to you by Captivated Health, a captive insurance arrangement designed specifically for educational institutions. If you have clients in that vertical, you know the healthcare deck has been stacked against them. Today, Captivated Health offers the stability, control, and savings they've been waiting for. For more information, go to www.captivatedhealth.com or click on the company logo on the Shift Shapers website. How can you be the first to know about each week's podcast and get on the list for special listener-only content? It's simple. Go to shiftshapersonline.com and click the subscribe button. On this episode of Shift Shapers, we're talking to Jessica Waltman. Jessica, as some of you know, joins us quarterly to talk about all things regulatory, legislative, political, and whatever other craziness is going on in the union. Jessica is principal at Forward Health Consulting, and we're privileged to have her take some time every quarter to chat with us. So with that, welcome, Jess. Thanks for having me back on the program, David. Appreciate it. We have a bushel basket of stuff to, to talk about, so let's dig right in. The first thing that uh, that I think we need to talk about is the, some people would call it a tax, some people would call it revenue raising, but people are starting to look on the Hill, are starting to look at the employer tax exclusion. And you alluded to this a little bit just before the Iowa caucuses when we spoke last time. And we talked about how it was mostly at that point, the Republicans who were talking about maybe watering that down or capping it. Let's level set. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and why it's important? Sure. So employees today that receive their health benefits through a group benefit plan are not taxed on the value of those benefits, which as we know can be, you know, a significant cost. And then they can also receive the portion that they pay for their benefits through a payroll tax deduction, you know, typically through a cafeteria plan. So the cost to benefits for individuals can be quite expensive, and their families. And so there's a kind of line of thought that, well, there's several lines of thought. Some people think that if employees were taxed on the value of their benefits, then they would understand the cost of their benefits. And it would also keep cost controls down. So sort of like the idea of the excise tax, that if there was a tax on higher cost plans, then you know, employers would stop offering them, employees would stop choosing them. Then there's also those that like it as a source of revenue, because right now it's kind of a, an unclaimed pot of money that employers are providing this benefit. And unlike, you know, your salary, which is payroll taxed, this benefit, these costs of these benefits, the federal government is not getting any piece of that pie. And then there's also a lot of people that do not believe that the employer-based system of providing health care is the best possible way to provide health care to Americans. And they would, in some cases, like a single-payer system or some type of other government you know, 
more government-regulated system. And then there's others that believe that healthcare should not be tied to a job at all. It should be portable. It should be an individual system. And, you know, essentially everyone should buy their own individual coverage. And that if there was going to be any type of federal benefit that it should be, you know, an individual income tax credit towards the cost of those benefits. To, so if any type of subsidy, the federal government views not taxing employer benefits as a subsidy to all the Americans that receive their benefits through their employer. So, but if, if this were withdrawn entirely, the, the feeling among a lot of people is that it would totally collapse the employer based system and it, it might, or it might not. What is the thought process behind capping the exclusion at a certain level? Is that kind of a a half step to getting to where folks in in Washington would really like to be? Well, I mean, there's a there's a couple of reasons why you would cap it and then tax above. I mean, first of all, it's a big revenue raiser. So right now, the exclusion when you you know depending on how you you value it in what you would cap it at or how you would eliminate it, it's really the most significant tax break um, that most Americans are getting besides a mortgage deduction, uh, you know, most common one, or or they view it that way. So if it was capped, it would bring in revenue to the federal government. And then there is some people that also believe that by capping it, it would put a you know, a cost control on employee benefits generally and prevent employers and from employees selecting high cost plans. It, much like the excise tax, it doesn't take into really account that the reason why plans cost more really vary based on geographic reasons, the health of the employees, the age of the employees, and a lot of other factors that are often, bet- you know, beyond the employer or the employee's control. So what's the best course of action that benefits advisors should take at this point? Is it just to kind of watch and wait or is there an action thing necessary or um, how would you advise them? Well, so right now it's interesting. I mean, you, there's a couple of different things that you can do is I think really we have a presidential election coming up. So really watching both candidates to see what they're saying about this. Neither one of them has really taken a clear position on the exclusion or well, actually neither of the Democratic front runners. Bernie Sanders would would want a single payer system, and so that would eliminate the exclusion just by creating a single payer system. Hillary Clinton hasn't really taken a clear position on it, and then Donald Trump hasn't per se, although his tax plan, what the details have been released, you would think that in some way capping the exclusion or eliminating the exclusion would be the way that he would make the numbers that he says he's going to make. So that would, you know, it's hard to, to, to make the numbers add up without at least some type of cap on the exclusion. So just kind of educating themselves moving forward. I mean, there's lots of reasons why people vote the way that they do, but just knowing that. Also, I think it's really important for employers and employees and agents and brokers to communicate to their members of Congress why the employee benefit system and the group health system has value and is a good deal for many, many individual Americans that they really probably do not want to buy health insurance on an individual level. I think pointing out things like when we tried to trans you know, send several million employees to individual or individuals to, to coverage through the exchanges over the last few years. It hasn't exactly gone very well. It's hard to imagine switching, you know, almost 200 million people to that type of system quickly. And then also the great advantages that employers have in terms of retaining excellent workers, like the reasons why employers offer benefits 
And then also communicating that this is a really good way to have and spread risk because people don't, you know, sometimes people buy, get a job because they want health insurance benefits, but they want them globally. It's not like the individual health insurance market where sometimes people hop in and hop out based on their health conditions. And then once you're in a pool of employees, you know, that spreading of risk, it's hard to duplicate it. And it's hard to come up with a lot of services and innovations in healthcare that we have in through the group benefit system when you apply it to the individual market. So for example, wellness programs, um, a lot of the disease management, a lot of the innovative cost control things that you're able to do in a group benefit plan, you really, it's very hard to replicate on an individual level. So that would all possibly be lost or really need to be adapted if we moved to a more individually driven health insurance system. And now a word from our sponsor. Captivated Health is a single-source solution for your clients and prospects who are in the education vertical. The founders of Captivated Health have nearly 20 years' experience working with educational institutions, and over that time, they've developed a keen understanding of the unique problems these clients experience. Frustrated by a lack of control, the unpredictability of ever-increasing health care costs, and the pressures and regulations of the Affordable Care Act, These groups have been adrift in the fully insured commercial marketplace until now. Captivated Health has built a program that solves those problems, and it does so with virtually no disruption to faculty and staff while saving clients millions of dollars. We wanted you to be among the first to know that Captivated Health is building a national distribution partner network so you can bring this cutting-edge solution to the educational clients you advise. To learn more about the Captivated Health solution, go to their website at www.captivatedhealth.com or click on their logo on the Shift Shapers website. And now, back to our interview. Let's move over to the regulatory side because there's been a lot of action. Now, we've spoken on other podcasts about the DOL fiduciary rule, so we'll we'll pass by that one for the moment. But there are a couple that, that just came out as we're recording this. One is around wellness and one is around overtime. So let's take those one at a time. Can you talk about what those rulings are, what they mean for practitioners and for the clients they serve? Sure. So earlier this week, the EEOC released rules related to employer-sponsored wellness programs. And previously, so the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, has gotten involved because they want to make sure that the applicability of the Americans for Disabilities Act and then the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, that wellness programs kind of don't tread on, on the rights consumers and individual employees have under those those acts. And there's been a number of court cases about it. And so this is kind of the EEOC's kind of setting out the, their ground and saying that some of the court decisions that have come out, they don't agree with them, that their interpretation as the regulatory agency to interpret those laws, they're kind of staking out their ground there. And so it's going to affect employer-sponsored wellness programs in a couple of ways. So Basically, it addresses programs um, from the ADA of whether or not they're voluntary, and then from the genetic non-discrimination angle, whether or not you can go back into somebody's medical history and ask about disabilities, or if you can require them to take a medical exam. And from the GINA part of it, the genetic non-discrimination part of it, when you define a family under the genetics rules, you know, spouses are considered family members, of course, but they're 
hopefully not have a close genetic connection. So they really, it's not the same thing as looking at somebody's genetic history between, you know, comparing two spouses as opposed to a, you know, one parent and then their children. So you're not supposed to, you know, discriminate against somebody based on their genetic information. But the argument would be that spouses should have very different genetic information. And so you could ask back about a medical history. So So basically, if you have a wellness program that incorporates any of these elements, there's a couple of things that are going to happen. First of all, previously, you could have incentives for participating in a wellness program of plus or minus 30% of the cost of the family premium. And this really limits it if you're going to incorporate these elements to the single employee rate. So that's a dramatic cost difference. It also applies that 30% standard to voluntary programs. And so anything that, that incorporates those elements. So for example, you know, now we have participatory wellness programs and incentive-driven wellness programs. So this would even apply it to participatory wellness programs, even if they're not directly connected to the employer-sponsored health plan and kind of put that value limit on it. It would also, you would have to ensure that the programs and the requirements met a, a reasonable design standard. And there's already a reasonable design standard in place, but this kind of expands it out a little bit further. And employers that incorporate this type of component into their wellness programs are going to have to provide a notice to employees. Now, incentive-driven wellness programs, employers already were supposed to be providing notice to their employees and have it part of their plan documents. This will just be a modification to that. So you could use the existing notice, but plenty of employers had participatory wellness programs that may kind of stray into this category and they did not have to have notices. So they would have to have notices. So it, you know, definitely will cause, I think, employers to rethink things. And, you know, sometimes the participatory wellness programs are offered by the the group carrier, particularly in a fully insured situation. And the employer may not really know what an employee is doing. And so it may look, the carriers may be having to change what they offer because there are value limitations on it because you really would have to be the the 30% of the single employee rate. And if there's multiple plans and the participatory program applies off of, you know, multiple plan choices, it would be 30% of the lowest plan choice offered. Perfectly crystal clear. Yeah, I, mean, I know. You know, just just like all of the regs always are. <laughs> we will for for listeners, we will link to these regs and also to we're going to next talk about the overtime rule, and we'll put links to both of those sets of regs in the show notes. So, what's happening in the overtime universe? So, an overtime rule was just released yesterday, and so you know, essentially, it doubles the amount an employee may make to qualify them for overtime. So, a lot of people that were salaried exempt employees today now probably make too too much or too little, depending on how you want to look at it, and now are going to qualify for overtime, like time and a half, really after they hit over that forty hours threshold. So, people that may have been now not tracking their hours, you know, we're going to need to be tracking hours. And there's some, there's definitely a thought that employers may be making some significant adjustments to people's base salaries or um, going with more part-time workers. There's a bunch of different ways that employers 
employers could make up or you know deal with that shortcoming. I mean, because it's it's unlikely that they're going to just start all of a sudden pull money out of thin air and start paying employees more. So salaried people that were used to just working to getting the job done now may be eligible for overtime. And the rule does not take effect until December of of 2016. So it, there is some time. It's not an immediate thing. The other, and the, and the wellness rules also don't take effect until the 2017 plan year. So it's not immediate. But then the other thing is employers are really going to have to look at how they structure other employee benefits. And it may have some impact on how they offer benefits. You know, for example, sometimes disability coverage is linked and only given to salaried employees. And now some of these people may not be exempt anymore. You know, it may, if employers have to make accommodations and are paying overtime, they may want to switch to a little bit more of a voluntary benefit structure. In terms of non-discrimination testing for the benefits, you know, really it wouldn't be affected, but in other respects it might be. So, you know, just looking at the total employee benefit package, it is of note. And then I know a lot of your Listeners are, of course, agents and brokers. And so within individual agencies, business owners really have to be aware of of how this may change and affect their current employees. And it's not an inestimable amount of money. It's almost $50,000, isn't it? Yes. So it's going to be loads of changes. And and there may be changes, as you alluded to, and I want to make sure folks understand this, just in terms of some employers may need to start putting in our keeping systems where they've never had them before and employees may are going to be required to keep track of their hours because this has to be reported. Right. And of course, this is a different hourly tracking standard than what you would be using to offer benefits generally according to the employer mandate. So it's not like they're lined up. So even if you weren't tracking hours before, but now you're tracking hours relative to the employer mandate, you know, this would be different. And if you do have a bunch of, you know, you know, a lot of people track hours now because they have variable hour employees and they need to do so for the mandate purposes. But there's plenty of other employers that, you know, have a ton of full-time workers that just are on, you know, that, that are just 40 hour a week. You know, we have a hundred employees, they all work 40 hours a week in our business. And they didn't necessarily need to track hours the same way. They could use the monthly measurement standard for the employer mandate, and now they're going to have to track. So, you know, in terms of working with payroll providers and what have you, there's going to be a lot of changes in the year ahead. I I really think that someplace there's a federal regulation that precludes any of these regulations from coordinating with each other. I agree with that. Yes, I think somewhere in the stack that that is there. So we've got about three, four minutes left. And I mean, why not? Tis the season. Let's talk about political stuff a little bit. One of the things that I thought was notable in the last week or so is that Mrs. Clinton is starting to pivot to the left, whether that's her normal running position or whether she's still trying to capture some of the Sanders votes or or whatever. She's now talking about something that we thought had been vanquished a long time ago, which is the long-feared public option. Can you remind folks what that's all about and what kind of an impact that might have? Right. So public option can really actually mean a a couple of different things. So under the health reform public option that went away, it would have been essentially a government, you know, controlled run plan that would compete on the private market, probably, you know, may have been, was proposed to be limited to the exchanges so that people could, you know, have some other type of option to pick from. Now, ironically, 
in the, the ACA development, what that was ultimately replaced with was the co-ops. So, you know, we all know how well that worked out. But so the, the public option would be some type of government-run plan, you know, to be determined how so that would compete with private insurers in which markets, in what way, who would be eligible to purchase it is all um, to be determined. But yes, it's interesting because the longer Sandra stays in the race, and I think at this point, you know, it is really, you know, she's just within a few delegates the, the day that we're recording this of, of, of meeting her, I forget what her number, target number is, but, you know, it's, it's increasingly unlikely that he will be the, un, the nominee or they will have a contested convention. But the longer that Sandra stays in the race, of course, the further left he drives Mrs. Clinton. So, you know, it's interesting to hear what she may come up with. What is the mindset, Jessica? Why do some people think this is such a great idea? Well, I think there's really this big perception that there's this huge administrative overhead within the private insurance world and that, you know, you have this, you used to talk about, you know, well, Medicare can do it with 3% administrative costs, which is not really true, but, you know, the, the, the government will be able to run things cheaper and more efficiently and it will give the individual an option to choose that would be less expensive, you know, more predictable, what have you. So if I can dictate prices, I can also dictate what the alleged administrative cost is going to be and at least make the case, true or not, fictitious, gerrymandered, whatever you want to call it or not, that we can do it cheaper. That's that's kind of the logic behind this. Right. And I mean, in, in some respects, they can, like, for example, one of the reasons why Medicare's administrative costs seem deceptively low. And first of all, of course, as we all know, it's not like Medicare is running some, you know, there's not some big Medicare health plan. But one of the reasons why they do it is all of their, say, for example, printing costs and things like that are absorbed into other parts of the budget. So, I mean, things that would be part of a general administrative cost, like mailing, things like that, that, that are all part of the cost of running a health plan are kind of pushed out into other categories when the federal government or, you know, perhaps the state government is running the show. So it's kind of deceptive about what the administrative cost level is. And then, yeah, so the idea is that it would be something cheaper, you know, run purely in the interest of the public, you know, more expansive benefits, that type of thing. Really, is it possible to do that? I, you know, I, don't think so, but that's kind of like the mass appeal. And, you know, and also a lot of it, this just sounds good. It just sounds good. It's a sound bite. I mean, that doesn't mean that people really understand what it means. That's true. And that's a, a sad but true place and a good place to leave our conversation. We covered a lot of ground in 20 minutes and we so look forward to having you back next quarter. That'll be post conventions and maybe the positions of, of the two candidates will be a little clearer and we can kind of talk about what that means in addition to whatever regulatory merriment has happened between now and then. So thank you for joining us and for spending your time. We always love having you on. Thank you. The Shift Shapers podcast is a production of Strategic Vision Publishing and David Saltzman. This podcast may not be reproduced in any form, in whole or in part, without the express written permission of the producers. All rights reserved.